0: Berkeley Yeast. Creators of the bioengineered yeast Tropics, which makes beer with insanely potent passion fruit and guava notes. I actually brewed with Tropics after we talked about it on episode 188, and the next day the brewery smelled like a guava orchard. Now, Berkeley Yeast just released Thiol Boost, which is a liquid thiol precursor that will take it to another level. Mention this podcast to get 15% off your next order. This is the Master Brewers podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Let's go. go, 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 go. <sighs> Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover
1: more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers, and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. We can't just change something as important as our brewing water without testing it before making the change do you control to sulfate or do you control to calcium or do you control to hardness like what what are you actually looking at and how do you do this blending based on the constituents of most interest to the to the brewing and quality team
0: this week on the show a simple engineering solution with a complex implementation at firestone walker
1: Hi, my name is Evan Meffert. I'm a a project engineer at New Belgium Brewing Company and Bells in Michigan.
0: When does a brewery need to use reverse osmosis to treat
1: its water? Either if they have really bad water and there's constituents in that water that are extremely undesirable in the beer process, Quick things that come to mind is if you happen to have trace amounts of lead in your brewing water, you just can't have lead in what makes it into the beer. So you have to put it through some positive barrier. And usually these days, that would be something like reverse osmosis. The other reason that a brewer would use reverse osmosis in treating brewing water would be if they want like ultimate control. Um, in the brew house and they want to be able to kind of tailor their water profiles, depending on the different beer styles that they're brewing with. That said brewers all over the world have just used their local water source since the beginning of time without intensive treatment, like reverse osmosis. So it's, I think it can be a stylistic decision. It can also be a technological decision. A lot of brewers uh, sometimes say that the water, the local water that is available to them creates a certain terroir, which, you know, borrowing that term from the wine industry. And therefore those brewers wouldn't use reverse osmosis because they don't believe in maybe the, the philosophy of such a technological approach to uh, water profiles. So It's a long way of saying that I feel like it can be a philosophical decision. Um, It can also be a requirement, depending on where you are and what your water looks like.
0: Your CQ paper says that RO is wasteful. How does RO work and why is it so wasteful?
1: So you take water, you run it through a super high pressure pump, and then you jam that water through a composite membrane, which is basically a membrane that's layered with a bunch of different materials that basically creates a semi-permeable surface that basically allows water and gas through it, but nothing else. So it's an extreme, what, what we would call a positive barrier, basically a barrier that removes everything but water and gas. So, viruses, bacteria, salts, so that you can get as close to pure water as possible without, um, I guess, an even purer version of water would be distillation.
0: And so, why is it so wasteful?
1: That happens over several stages. So, it goes through, for instance, it could go through three membranes, and then the permeate, or the water that comes out of the now treated water that comes out of the membranes then goes through a second stage which would maybe be two membranes and then it would go through a third stage or sometimes it's only two stages but um at the end of that process what what really what's happening is through each stage the the water becomes more and more pure which is then referred to as permeate but there's the the less pure water that kind of stays behind gets concentrated up over each one of those stages so as the permeate becomes more pure the concentrate becomes more concentrated which is why it's called concentrate Um, and that concentrate then is uh, not quite brackish water but it's you know all of those contaminants which are mostly you know salts those are now concentrated up at a really high level, and then they have to be discharged. So basically, there's no way to get away from that waste stream with RO technology.
0: And and just how big is that stream? How, how, How much of that waste is
1: produced? So for every three gallons, uh, this is traditional RO technology. Um, RO technology has changed a little bit and it can be a little bit more efficient, but traditional RO technology uses one gallon of concentrate is wasted for every three gallons of permeate produced.
0: Okay. So, wow. So pretty significant.
1: Yeah. It's a 75% efficient process, basically.
0: Okay. This was a case study. Give us some background on the brewery's water treatment journey so we can understand how all this came about.
1: Yeah, so um, we implemented this at Firestone Walker in California. Firestone is a pretty technologically advanced brewery. They're using extensive water treatment, um, more extensive than, than other breweries I've seen, and they have made that decision to run all of their brewing water through reverse osmosis membranes. So their source water treatment, they, they source water from uh, the local municipality, which is coming basically from groundwater uh, wells all in the area. And then that water is pumped to the brewery through water meter. The brewery uh, then stores it in a source water tank basically just a big buffer tank that just has city water in it and then uh, a portion of that source water is then passed through a activated carbon filter to remove chlorine and then after the activated carbon filter it goes through uh, like a pre-sedimentation filter and then through the RO membranes at which point the RO water then is stored you know brewing water storage tank then gets that water, then gets pumped all over the brewery for different uh, brewery uses.
0: Tell us more about sort of how this case study came to be. Why was um, what we're going to be talking about even proposed as a consideration? Was this all just about improving upon that amount that's wasted?
1: Yeah, it, it's it, this is an interesting case study for me because it's always been something I've thought about throughout my career, not just working at Firestone. Um, and when I started at Firestone, all of us nerdy engineers, we were, you know, we talked about this a lot in the in our office. Is that, you know, for breweries that that use reverse osmosis technology to treat their brewing water, they're basically stripping out all salts, going to pure water. And then you get in the brew house, and brewers add salts back in. Um, and that was always like, you know, you see that as an engineer, and that's like a an opportunity. That's a that's an inefficiency <laughs> that you're stripping salts out to add a salts back in. Um, it gives the brewer ultimate control over that's the salt profile um, for whatever they're making, which is which is awesome, but we were always thinking about, well, why do we strip all the salts out? Maybe we should leave some of the salt in there. And then that would allow us to make the reverse osmosis system more efficient. It could also save on salts in the brew house. So I would say that's the genesis of the project.
0: Okay. So ultimately the idea here was what to, to just not completely run all the water through RO?
1: Yeah. Um, so th- with that initial well with the initial concept of keeping some of the salts in there there's not really anything you can do with the membranes it's not like you can decrease the pressure and allow more salts through you can't really back off on that positive barrier that that the reverse osmosis membranes provide but what you can do is take some untreated water from the front end of that process and slipstream it pass the membranes and blend it back in. Um, so that was kind of where we went with it. Um, really simple solution, really. It's, it's just a control valve and a, a conductivity meter um, that then is you know goes back to the, the local PLC that we had in that room. And then uh, we were able to do all the programming ourselves to control that valve. Uh, to allow this slipstream blending
0: So this was a simple engineering solution but a rather complex implementation Tell us why that is
1: yeah um, I would say it, it was a complex implementation because we're a production brewery and you know we can't just change something as important as our brewing water uh, without kind of testing it before making the change, kind of getting that confidence throughout uh, all the stakeholders um, in the production team and the quality teams. So the, I would say the the complicated part then was assessing our source water quality, figuring out which constituents were the main constituents of concern in our source water getting everyone on the same page that those are <laughs> the constituents that we want to be, you know, looking at, and then figuring out basically a control methodology for this system. Like, do you, do you control to sulfate or do you control to calcium or do you control to hardness? Like, what do you, what are you actually looking at and how do you do this blending based on, the constituents of most interest to the, to the brewing and quality team.
0: I'm sure there were a lot of concerns from a lot of different people, but what, what was really the, the biggest concern in all of this?
1: I would say the biggest concern was that the, after we assessed our source water profiles, our source water was, was pretty good. It had a high hardness and uh, calcium, which would prevent the amount of blending that we can do but the biggest i guess piece of concern was you know are we gonna are we gonna miss like an iron slug or you know we don't really have manganese in our water but there was a little bit right. of iron is, there,
0: is there something unde- undesirable that's going to contaminate your, your your new your new process water basically right
1: yeah exactly and like how confident can we be you know if you actually track your source water over time you can see that it moves all over the place like the profiles aren't static throughout the year right especially if you're pulling from local groundwater
0: well, and you, you know, you mentioned you said it's all coming from from local groundwater, and that's you're right. It can change, but you know that can also be a lot more stable. I've worked in some breweries before where the water chemistry fluctuated throughout the day because the municipality might be pulling from you know this one source for a little while, and then they switch to a different source, and variability can be rather significant.
1: Yep, totally. So that ended up being the biggest problem. Was the vi- not necessarily like. How much was in, how much of any one constituent was in the water, but the variability of specific constituents that we saw over time.
0: You kind of alluded to this earlier, but are there any scenarios in which uh, a partial bypass uh, of an RO process would just be completely off the table?
1: Yeah, I think for sure. Um, Like I said, well, (laughs) lead would be one uh, constituent of concern that you just would say, okay, we can't do this. I would also say if you have, if you have high levels of iron in your water or manganese, any significant oxidant um, is going to uh, impede your ability to do this. That said, like if you, if you have high iron and low calcium, then, you know, you're, the iron then just becomes the the limiting constituent there and then you then you have to look out like oh if i have if my target is 0.2 ppm of iron or lower and I have 10 ppm you know it's just going to limit your bypass enough that you'll say well we can only get so much bypass out of this it's not worth it
0: Evan, talk about the use of antiscalants. What are they and why are they often used in RO systems?
1: Yeah, um, so anti are... I, th- I don't know of an RO system that doesn't use an anti-scalant. I'm sure they're out there if you have really low levels of um, certain um, constituents in your water. But anti-scalants are generally used to keep hardness metals and or silica are, those are the main um, constituents of concern that antiscalants are targeting um, to keep those things dissolved in the concentrate um, across each membrane stage so that uh, they can be wasted with the concentrate. If you don't dose an antiscalant and those constituents are allowed to um, become more and more concentrated across each stage they will um basically reach their saturation um, threshold and in reading that or in reaching that that threshold they'll just deposit on the membranes um and basically destroy your membranes you'll then have to take them out replace them clean them whatever um but it it results in downtime for your ro plant if you don't use anti-scalants
0: Let's get into how you determine the target blend of RO-treated and bypassed water. Which water quality parameters did you decide to focus
1: on and why? So, yeah, the main constituents of concern for us were alkalinity, pH, uh, calcium, magnesium, iron, manganese, sodium sulfate, and chloride. I won't get into each one of those. There's a lot of papers out there that talk about why those are important in brewing, We were focused on controlling for each one of those. But really what we saw as we assessed our source water profiles is that the the iron and manganese concentrations were pretty low. Um, The alkalinity was fairly consistent. So that that wasn't something that we were too concerned about. Um, The thing that moved all over the place was... Uh, sulfate. So our sulfate levels in our source water would range from 50 milligrams per liter up to 190 milligrams per liter throughout the year. And sometimes those would jump throughout the month. So that variability caused concern for us. The other thing that made sulfate such a key constituent was the least amount of salts that we adjusted with in the brew house was for um, basically a Hellas recipe, and uh, that was a really low adjustment. Um, there was actually no adjustment in our, in our process, so we were just brewing with pure RO water, basically. So then we had to assess. Well, do we right now? There's basically zero sulfate, you know, adjusted for in in the brew house for this Hellas recipe. Can we? Allow a little bit of sulfate through this bypass, and will it affect that that one brand?
0: So sulfate was the was the limiting factor. Were there any other parameters that were limiting, or was it just sulfate?
1: Um, another factor. I mean, really, like the sodium and chloride levels, and the iron and manganese you know, and the alkalinity, those were all, those all limited the amount of bypass that we could do. Um, But the variability in sulfate was what required the bench testing and the further investigation. Um, So, yeah, I would say all of them limit the amount of bypass. Um, But then sulfate was the constituent that we were concerned about from a quality aspect. Coming up So basically we were trying to figure out can we use connectivity as a proxy for sulfate
0: I'm John Bryce and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support.
2: Sponsored by BSG, North America's exclusive distributor of Wireman Specialty Malts. For over 140 years, Weirman Specialty Malts has been helping brewers around the world bring authentic German flavor to their brew houses. From caramel malts to the Barca line and heirloom barley varieties, Weirman's malts are sought after and celebrated for their performance and flavor. Bring a taste of Bavaria to your brew house and explore Weirman's complete portfolio at bsgcraftbrewing.com backslash Weirman.
1: Get to know Proximity Malt.
2: Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today.
0: BSI, your brewing partner since 1996, is your destination for top-quality liquid yeast cultures, lab services, and brewing products. BSI customizes your yeast orders for the perfect healthy pitch rate from a collection of over 300 strains. Most strains ship within seven days, but now try BSI's Express Yeast with industry-favorite strains shipped the next business day. As of 2023, BSI is proud to be a 100% employee-owned business. Professional brewers can call for a free same-day consultation or visit BrewingScience.com to access over 50 years of brewing expertise. Are you sure you're getting the best deal? Visit the Lupulin Exchange, where you can find every hop variety, every brand, and every vendor. Compare prices, reviews, shipping speeds, reliability, and more on over a million pounds shipping direct from every hop merchant and grower in the U.S. The Lupulin Exchange. One stop, all the hops. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Georgia and the Georgia Craft Brewers Guild have a joint symposium November 6th in Atlanta. District Great Plains, District St. Louis, and the Missouri Craft Brewers Guild are holding a joint meeting November 10th and 11th in Springfield. Alpha Brewing will host the District St. Louis Shop Talk November 13th. District Northern California's fall technical meeting is November 15th at Sudwerk. District Milwaukee's November meeting and elections will be at Brewfinity, November 16th. The District St. Paul, Minneapolis fall meeting is November 16th. District Midwest meets December 2nd at Royal Docks Brew House in Cannery. District Rocky Mountain meets December 6th at Leopold Brothers in Denver. The 2024 Barley Improvement Conference is January 10th and 11th in San Diego. It's time to save the date for the 2024 World Brewing Congress. That's August 17th through the 20th in Minneapolis. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you.
2: Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to mbaa.com and use code BEER2023 when you join.
0: Now back to the show. So, what was the next step?
1: Um, yeah, so we we decided that the, the variability in sulfate was was um, a concern for us. So, we started uh, bench testing. Basically, we took we we have a wastewater lab. Um, we had somewhat significant water testing capabilities there, but not for source water, but we did have some, we had a, a lab technician that, that we were able to kind of put some of this work onto and, and he worked with us to identify uh, what these blends would look like. So we, blended basically a one liter quantity of dechlorinated ro feed water with permeate and we kind of like bounced around with that you know what's our what's our target but we we blended that to a i think initially 150 microsemen connectivity measurement which is really easily measured with a handheld meter and then once we verified that we hit our 150 microsemen target, then we assessed that blend water for a variety of constituents in the lab setting. So we tested it for total hardness, total alkalinity, bicarbonate, pH sulfate and chloride. Um, we also spot tested for iron a few times just to see if iron was an issue, which it wasn't. Iron always came out around, uh, pretty close to zero. So we kind of stopped testing at some point.
0: And, and you did this over like a, was it, I think it was like a nine month period. Was that because you wanted to assess the, to make sure that it wasn't fluctuating so much or or why was that?
1: Yeah. It was because we do see that sulfate variability. We see, like I said, it can vary throughout the month, but it really, it moves in like annual cycles. And that has a lot to do with kind of the hydrogeology of our region, I would say, and the different water sources that the city that we were purchasing from, um, sources from.
0: Okay, so I guess um, I guess tell us how the conductivity specification itself was determined.
1: Yeah, so after doing some of these correlations, we kind of saw like, oh... I mean, really, it was just, you know, if, if the connectivity of source water is, uh, whatever, call it 500, um, and we know that it has about this much sulfate in it, you know, if we theoretically cut it with this much RO and get to 150 microsiemens from 500, does that mean that the sulfate, you know, is reduced, um, at the same scale as the connectivity. So basically we were trying to figure out, can we use connectivity as a proxy for sulfate? Um, and it was pretty linear. The sulfate did go up and down with the connectivity. And then we kind of realized that, okay, if we want to set going back to like the Hellas discussion, if we want to set, um, our max sulfate concentrations in our brewing water at 20 milligrams per liter. That's the most sulfate we're willing to accept in our Hellas recipe. What's the, what is that correlative connectivity measurement? Um, so that was all just, you know, basically, uh, a little bit of light algebra to figure that out. Um, And we kind of landed on 150 microsiemens for the blending trials. And then um, through the implementation, we kind of backed off that 150, just a lot out of just being conservative. Um, And we ended up at a 90 microsiemens connectivity target for the blend in production
0: tell us about what else had to be done in regards to recipe adjustments and finished beer baselines before you could proceed all the way with this.
1: Yeah. So that kind of, we went through that bench testing where we were just blending waters and then, and then assessing different constituents in those blended waters. Uh, At the same time, we also pulled a sample of cold liquor from the, from the cold liquor tank. Um, with straight RO water, which basically we expected that to basically be close to our RO permeate profiles. And they were, uh, but cold liquor was our kind of our baseline, um, control. And then we also, uh, pull the can of, um, the highest production beer that goes through the brewery. Uh, and we sent both of those to an outside lab, um, I'm not sure which lab we sent it to our lab manager kind of took care of that for me, but that was, uh, that gave us like our both brewing water and finished beer baselines. Um, and then afterwards, after we implemented this, this new system, we, uh, did the same test with the same beer and the same cold liquor, we sent that into an outside lab and had that analyzed um, in the same way, really a, an ICP analysis to look at the different um, inorganic compounds uh, in finished beer and brewing water.
0: The results of those uh, before and after beers were similar, uh, but a little surprising. Talk about that.
1: Um, yeah, the ionic. So yeah, we had the, the, kind of the inorganic constituent profile um, of the beer before and after and what we saw was that um, surprisingly (laughs) the finished beer uh, the inorganic compounds were elevated were more elevated in the um, the control or the the sample that we took before the change um, than they were in the sample that we took after the change. So obviously, I would have expected that for the most part, the inorganic compounds in the blended RO water would be higher than the inorganic compounds in the straight RO water.
0: Do you, Do you think that comes from like maybe like changes in your malt or something like that, or like I mean, have you, have you thought much about like why that could be?
1: Yeah, and that's it. Did say were huge said in, changes, right? No, they weren't. I mean, I'm just looking at hardness right now. It was like 500 milligrams per liter um, in the blended brewing water, or beer made with blended brewing water, and it was like 600 in beer made with straight RO water. So it's not it's not a big enough difference that you could assign. It'd be interesting to kind of follow up on and and research with more um, samples. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I think there's too many, yeah, there's too many variables in the process or the raw materials to really assign any significant finding there. But I think the main thing is that the, they were either the same, those inorganic constituents were either the same or, or close enough that there wouldn't be any uh, quality or, or flavor impacts.
0: Okay, so you got the green light on that part. There was another risk that we haven't discussed yet related to microbiological stability. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, um one thing that I think about a lot is like the food safety impacts of how we manage our, our water in in our breweries. Um and there are really I think a lot of the food safety standards just say, you know, you got to use potable water <laughs> to 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 do whatever you're doing. Most breweries do use potable water. Um, potable is just means drinking water. Um, the issue is that like we, water is mostly potable in our breweries because it's chlorinated on its way in, um, but chlorine is bad for beer and um, it's bad for stainless. It's bad for a lot of things in our breweries. So we remove it. And then when we remove it, we don't necessarily, you know, depending on the brewery, you don't necessarily use it immediately. Um, But the minute you remove chlorine from water, it becomes bacteriologically unstable. Um, And in this case, what we're doing is we are removing uh, chlorine from the water. And then we're blending it into, into our RO water directly without putting it through something like an RO membrane that would remove any bacteria that, that could have either basically any bacteria that could have been picked up between the activated carbon filter where you're removing the chlorine and where it gets used this is the same, I mean, this, this risk exists for the RO water itself. Um, but the, the, the thing about the RO water is, is any, any bacteria that would have gotten in there would have been removed by the membranes. Um, but that doesn't mean that now this dechlorinated RO water doesn't, you know, without the chlorine in there, it's not, you can't call it bacteriologically stable unless you have some other way to stabilize it like usually uv is the main um technology that would be used either in tanks or, or in um pipes um on the way to to its final use but in general in breweries you know we we have another positive barrier after ro and that's the boil in the brew house um so if all of this water is going to be boiled in the brew house, then you can call that your final like microbiological stabilization step. Um, and that is something that we, we accepted um, as as enough for this project. But it would have to be something that would be assessed Depending on your process, you know, if you if there's a if there's a risk that there's not going to be a boil step or a reheating step, then um, that would just be something that would have to be taken into consideration by any brewery wanting to do something like this.
0: Okay. This project ultimately had a very good ROI. Tell us about the overall impact.
1: Uh, yeah. So. I think I said, well, I, I mentioned that we used just a, a modulating valve and, um, a connectivity sensor, a little bit of piping. Um, I don't know the exact cost, but I think it was somewhere in the $4,000 range. Um, and then what we got out of it is that, um, it was implemented, um, on a system that was making about 100, 150 gpm of ro permeate um the brewery was demanding about hundred thousand gallons a day and during once we implemented this the bypass accounted for about 25 gpm so instead of 150 gpm plant all of a sudden we had 175 gpm plant so that Resulted in about 14,000 gallons of additional bypass water, which offset 45,000 gallons per day of concentrate. Um, So that was, I'm sorry, I said 45,000, 4,500 gallons per day um, of concentrate, which is about 1.5 million gallons per year at this brewery. So I think to me, that's like, that's a huge win is... A lot of breweries are looking for water savings these days and ways to figure out their water-to-beer ratio. And um, a $4,000 project to save 1.5 million gallons per year was was pretty good. Uh, But there was also a financial impact to that. And if you look at the cost to the brewery to source and dispose of that concentrate, it was about $38,000 per year of savings. Um, yeah. And then there's some, there's also some electrical savings associated with decreased runtime of the RO skid. You know, there's a giant pump on that thing. So any time you can save any um, motor hours, you can save on that thing. You're going to save a lot of electricity. Um, then there was also the, the savings and salt adjustments. Those were, those are small enough that we didn't even calculate them, but there were some minor um, savings associated with salt.
0: And I think your paper said this thing paid for itself in something like two months or something like that, right?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was a pretty quick turnaround. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, I'm just curious. Let's hear more about that that wastewater stream of concentrate. What happens to that? Does it just go straight to drain? Uh, does that help your your, does that help improve brewery effluent? I, I believe the applicable phrase there would be solution by dilution or you know, <laughs> and are there any other are there any other pro- possibilities to reuse that water elsewhere
1: um yeah so for us that water went into um our uh wastewater treatment system so we had a pretty extensive wastewater treatment system at Firestone that then pre-treated that water before discharging it to the back to the local municipality. Um, We were in a situation where salts and TDS was one of the major constituents of concern in our effluent. Um, So pulling that, really pulling that water out was very helpful. Yeah. It was super helpful. Decreasing the amount of concentrate going down the drain was, was helpful. And whether or not you can use that water somewhere else, I think that's like the million dollar question. (laughs) If you, if you can find out how to use concentrate somewhere else, um, basically extremely salty water, um, you can probably make a lot of money one day
0: that was evan meffert here on the master brewers podcast if you want to learn more check the show notes for a link to evan's paper in the master brewers technical quarterly are you enjoying the master brewers podcast let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more take a minute to thank our sponsors There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Proximity Mall, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.